Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Supporting Students' Learning in a New Normal of Teaching. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Brand Jacek, who is a professor at Purdue University with appointments in engineering education and electrical and computer engineering. He draws on expertise from engineering, computing, and the social sciences to investigate geographic, disciplinary, and historical variations in engineering education and professional practice. His research focuses on global competency and boundary spanning and engineering practice, perceptions of ethics and social responsibility among undergraduate engineering students, and the history of electrical and computer engineering education. So, Brent, welcome to our podcast series. Uh, we're so happy to have you here and looking forward to talking about your experience of teaching uh, online courses over the last year and some of your reflections about what new normal might be starting in the fall. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So I don't know if we want to start by providing, maybe if you could provide our listeners some of the overview of what last year was for you like and uh, what courses you had to teach online. Yeah, sure. Just just in terms of background, um, I am a faculty member at Purdue University with uh, appointments in engineering education and electrical and computer engineering. And my teaching kind of spans both undergraduate and, and graduate level. And over this last year or so, I had opportunities to um, teach both an undergraduate course and a graduate uh, graduate level course. And um, probably start with the undergraduate course first. Um, so I um, have for quite a few years uh, been teaching um, one of our undergraduate um, first year introductory engineering courses. It's called Engineering 132. It's the second in a sequence of, of two courses. Um, the first course is, is uh, more focused on um, design, innovation, ideation, team building, um, maybe some basic introduction to Microsoft Excel, some some light data analysis uh, types of, of skills. Um, the second course is very heavily focused on MATLAB programming. So we use uh, MATLAB as an introductory programming environment. Um, we use that to teach basic programming uh, concepts and skills. A large majority of students in the class haven't had uh, much, if any, exposure to learning computer programming. So MATLAB really becomes the vehicle to do that. And then we also web that with some other engineering concepts. So we, we try to focus on doing some data analysis and learning some relevant, you know, statistical techniques and engineering concepts through assignments and through um, other types of hands-on learning. And then the the course really culminates with a um, with a project that's about the last third of the class. It's a, a, a team project. Different sections and instructors have different projects. I have a, a project that I've, I've developed and used for, for a number of years. So the, you know, when the pandemic occurred, um, you know, the, the first, <laughs> the first semester that was disrupted, you know, back in, uh, spring of, of 2020, uh, it really impacted primarily the last one third of the class. So it was really about taking what had traditionally been a more classroom based, uh, project experience and then uh, transitioning that into a more online uh, format. And, and then, of course, I've also taught the course in a, a fully fully online uh, last fall as well, two sections of the class. Um, and again, just contextualizing, it's a, it's a fairly large class, um, more than 100 students in, in each section. Uh, and again, very team-based. So the students are always in teams of three or four, um, frequently working together and especially on, on the project activities. I'll just touch on a couple of things, and then and then you all can jump in and, and tell me where you'd like me to elaborate. The the course has historically been in a flipped classroom format anyway, so we had a real advantage coming in that even before the the pandemic disruption, students were already required or expected to watch um, short videos that covered key concepts, and mm-hmm. then uh, we would use that as sort of a, a foundation. They, they would watch the short videos before class. They were expected to take some short quizzes that counted towards their grade to hold them accountable on that material. And then we would use that as a sort of base foundation then to come into class sessions with a bit more of a just-in-time kind of model. So 
we would revisit any of the concepts in the videos to um, see if there there were there were points of confusion or things we needed to cover or just reinforce understanding of. And then we might move to more advanced concepts that kind of built on that. So really just using the pre-class videos as a, as a foundational element so we can mm-hmm. make better use of the class time, um, make it a little bit more hands-on, interactive, shorten the amount of lecture time in class, chunk it up into, to, um, into smaller uh, bits of time, do more hands-on activities, have more opportunities for instructors, teaching assistants to, to support that learning. So that's really the model that, that we then used. And in going to the online format, use Zoom to, to facilitate those class meetings. And again, those were often similar in a way to what we would do in the classroom, where I would often have a, have a, a series of, of slides that I would use to revisit, reinforce concepts. And then we'd frequently have students working in breakout groups. We might assign them to some specific tasks that they'd be required to do and submit during class. For example, we might give them a small problem and they'd have to develop some MATLAB uh, code as a group and then submit that. And that would count towards their class participation activities for the day. Um, We would also have them get started on uh, the homework assignments um, in those breakout groups and everything from uh, talking to one another about the assignment requirements, getting their questions answered. Members of our instructional team would sort of filter through those breakout rooms and check in with the groups. We have undergraduate peer teachers that would be assigned to do that, to, you know, be checking in with groups. And then they were also invited to use the, um, you know, the sort of raise hand function with the breakouts to have us come in and uh, answer questions that they might have. Mm -hmm. And then as we transitioned to the project, it was a similar type of model. And I actually had two different variations of how I ran the project. The first time we did it, we actually didn't have class meetings at all. We just met with Mm -hmm. every team on a weekly basis to check in. So students had various participation requirements, and one of the requirements was every week they had to have at least one member of their team check in with a member of our teaching team to report on their progress, get questions answered, you know, those types of things. The second time we did it, we kept with the standard class meeting schedule, although we worked in some optional classes. So they didn't always have to be there. Maybe on average, they had to be there once a week, sometimes twice a week, and we use that as a way to check in regularly on, on their, their progress on the various project milestones. Um, so th- those were some, some of the main adaptations, and, you know, I'm happy to talk more about, um, to get into any details on that if, if it would be helpful. And then the grad course, you mentioned there was a grad course. Yeah, so um, the graduate course is a course called Globalization and Engineering, it is an elective graduate course, which is taken by students in engineering education. We have a on-campus interdisciplinary master's degree program that accepts that course, um, and a number of students took it in that program. And we have some online master's degree programs that also accept that course. Um, it's been offered three times. The first time was um, face-to-face with, a, with just five students, and then the second time we offered it, it had already been developed into a hybrid format, and so that was particularly for the online master's students. So we already had a group in that class. I think we had five or six students who were at a distance taking the class, mm-hmm. and we had um, a group of maybe eight or nine students who were in the classroom taking the class, and we would have a, a two-hour combined meeting every week where um, we'd bring in the distance students via, um, you know, like WebEx or Zoom, and uh, they would join us in the physical classroom with the with the on-campus students for those two hours every week. So when the pandemic came along, that model lent itself very well to just putting everyone online. So mm-hmm. it left the playing field a little bit in the sense that instead of having this kind of uh, maybe a bit of a feeling of disconnect or a gap between the on-campus students and the off-campus students, everybody was just off-campus. <laughs> so we were all meeting in a Zoom classroom instead. So I think that's had some advantages for sort of leveling out the experience, um, although arguably it might have dampened the experience a little bit for the residential students because they didn't get that face-to-face interactions. Um, so that cl- class moved to the online format pretty pretty seamlessly, although, you know, always playing with new tools and techniques. Uh, for example, Jamboard is one of the things that I used a lot uh, this, this spring, uh, which worked quite nice to, to enrich that class. 
It's really interesting. And, you know, I just want to zoom in a little bit on the undergraduate course and specifically on students working in groups. And you said they use Zoom breakout groups. So how did that work for students? Were there any kind of obvious um, disadvantages or maybe advantages of that, in your opinion? That that worked pretty well. And, you know, that but but those Zoom, Zoom breakouts were, were just for the class meeting times. And, and I should note, too, that these classes have a lot of contact time. So those classes, it's a two credit class that's actually scheduled for four meeting hours per week. So it's a, it's a lot of contact time. I would say it, it, it technically worked very well. And one of the advantages that, you know, that I have in those classes is I have a teaching assistant for, for the class and he basically served as the, the sort of producer and master of ceremonies. And so, Having someone actually run the Zoom room was really, really critical for me because I could focus on the teaching aspect and some of the coordination pieces and just kind of like figuring out what the schedule and agenda was. But he handled all of the sort of all all the sort of technical details and procedural pieces in Zoom. So he would set up and launch the breakout rooms. If someone got stuck outside the class, he would let them back in. If students had trouble joining breakouts, he would assist them. So he had a lot of that technical facilitation. And again, when you're talking over 100 students joining a Zoom meeting, you know, every class meeting, um, that was a really critical aspect. And, and again, that helped me focus on just doing my job, which is focused on teaching and running the class and that high level orchestration and then him sort of managing what what that looks like in the in the Zoom setting. Now, the students themselves outside of class, they used a lot of different platforms as well, which is kind of a neat aspect to this. Um, I, you know, we had students who were meeting, uh, having, you know, synchronous meetings on any platform you can imagine. Some were, you know, doing duo on their phones or Google Meets or Zoom or WebEx or Skype. We had them using other platforms like like Slack and uh, Discord, very popular. Um, we didn't limit any of that. We said, you know, you, you choose and find the platforms that work, work for you to, to sort of manage the communication and coordination of your work. And, you know, as, as students will, they used all, all the above pretty much. I, I will make a comment, though, coming back to something you mentioned earlier, is that I did hear from a couple of students, um, especially when we first moved into sort of the all online mode, students acknowledging that they were observing their parents do this kind of distance and remote teamwork for their jobs. And they were realizing that a lot of what they were experiencing in their teamwork in the class mirrored that experience. And so having to try to find ways to effectively communicate and coordinate and collaborate using these tools mirrored a lot of what they were seeing their parents doing. And it really reinforced that, oh, wait a minute, this is something I need to learn how to do for my job in the future. And so mm-hmm. I was really happy to see that connection be be made and for them to see that this kind of teamwork um, they saw as relevant to, to sort of preparing them for, for jobs going forward. That's really interesting. So uh, in thinking about your own process for preparing for the class, so this is not a course that you were teaching for the first time, 132, I mean. Um, how did you, I know you said the grad class because it was blended, just kind of seamlessly transitioned to online. But how did you, I guess, make the content fit an online environment for a class that for as many times as you taught it was face-to-face? Yeah, that's a great question. And and because it is a large enrollment class with a lot of sections and instructors, a lot of those decisions get made collectively among a, a larger sort of curating and instructional mm-hmm. team, right? So those aren't all my decisions, although I certainly have opportunities to weigh in on that. One thing that definitely happened, especially once we got to like a full semester online implementation of the class, was that we we definitely removed some things. Mm-hmm. So the number of homeworks, the number of homework problems, the number of assessments, and actually the content that was covered got trimmed back a little bit um, because it is harder to cover. It was harder to cover that amount of material at the level of quality and that we had mm-hmm. previously in the face-to-face settings. And again, there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have as many opportunities to just walk around and have informal conversations with students and observe and see what they're doing and 
do those kind of real-time course adjustments when we see students having problems or running into difficulties. All that just becomes harder. Office hours become, you know, less used sometimes, less effective. Um, students don't show up. The team support gets dampened a little bit as well because the students are only connected in an online environment. So that can become a lot more instrumental. They're not forced to sit next to each other and across from each other and look each other in the eyes during class meetings. So that also dampens the peer support that they get. So we definitely, these courses, I think, have a reputation for being, um, you know, as they say, too much packed into uh, too little space. And so it was an opportunity to dial back down a little bit. And in part, it was because of some of the constraints that we were facing in, in, in the fully online environment. Okay. I'm just curious if you think that some of the students actually benefited from or felt more comfortable by collaborating with their peers online. And I don't know if you noticed that from teaching this, if you heard anything from the students. Yeah, I think... I mean, my observation is that there, there's a, there is a relatively small percentage of students for whom, uh, this format worked, worked well for a variety of reasons. Um, but I, I would say it was a, it was a minority of the students that, um, you know, preferred or, th or even thrived in this type of environment for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, I, I, if you look at the types of students, perhaps for whom this worked well, you know, it, it's it's students who were in relatively stable, you know, stable living situations. They had good family and friends support and networks. Mm -hmm. um, they maybe still had some opportunities for social outside of class uh, to replace some of what they were missing in class. Maybe students who were a little bit more introverted. Right. Um, didn't didn't need that social interaction, maybe quite as much students who tended to be more um, intrinsically motivated. You know, th th those were some of the students who, who probably, you know, did particularly well in that setting. But again, I, I would say that was a it was definitely the, in, in the mi minority. I, I think the majority of students um, had some amount of struggle and <laughs> challenges for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it, it, it was challenging. So I, I, something you said about students who had fairly stable living situation makes me think of how much this current pandemic situation highlighted assumptions we made about students as it re relates to type of resources they have or access. Thinking about your class, were there things you had to do to work around the assumption that, for example, everyone had high-speed internet at home, or reliable, let's not even go high-speed, reliable internet. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we, we ran into issues with students having, uh, so just as a bit of background, um, you know, traditionally we do a two or three, you know, face-to-face uh, -face exams in these classes, mm -hmm. uh, often in a very large space on campus, like an auditorium setting. Um, you know, imagine a thousand students in in a, in a major auditorium taking the exam all at once. You know, that that was that was common in previous years. We moved to an online exam format, which was some of its own innovations. Um, one of the things, because we have a, a fairly large instructional support team, they they actually developed MATLAB code, which would generate partially customized exam questions for students based on their uh, user ID. So students would download this code and they would um, put in their ID number and what problem they were generating and it, it, would, it would create a, uh, a problem that was partially customized for them. So that helped avoid some of, the, some of the cheating and intellectual, or sorry, the academic integrity issues that come with giving a standard exam to all students in an online format, provide some of that customization and, and hopefully dampens that temptation to to cheat because um, you're getting your own problems that are unique for for you and those have unique answers specific to you or partially specific to you the students don't always really know right um, so we had developed this format and, and we gave students like a 24-hour window to complete those exams and um, you know we had students who had technology problems because their internet was slow or 
they didn't have good devices or um, had trouble connecting over VPN to access MATLAB if they didn't have a license installed, right? So we did run into those kind of concerns where if we were on campus, we could say go to a computer lab, but not all those students were on campus, right? Some of them were remote. Um, similar issues with international students, right? Um, sometimes there were, you know, firewall types of issues for students in other countries. Um, time zone differences are a big challenge. Again, that's why we do like a 24-hour window on a lot of things. Um, we had a group of fully online learners who we we did not require to come to class. Um, they because the class meetings were not at a time that was convenient, and, and that posed its own set of challenges. So. They were expected to uh, watch or review the recorded content and do the class participation activities to demonstrate that they had um, that they had participated. But again, uh, that's a different kind of ask than than having someone actually come to class. So we were dealing with all those kinds of things, and then layered on top of that, mental health issues and unstable family situations and relatives coming down with COVID, and you know. All the above, pretty much. Um, we, we've, we've pretty much seen it all. Um, and I think a lot of those things are there in the background in a, in a regular on-campus residential setting. They're just not as visible, but they were, you know, definitely more visible and intensified and amplified because of the particular circumstances that, that we we're dealing with. So yeah, we, we saw a lot of those types of things in, in both the semesters that I was teaching. And Brent, you know, just, Curious about situation, for example, we had this big disruption over the last year. Things have changed and we're trying to come back to some kind of new normal in the fall. And if not for the stresses of the pandemics, that's really hard to overlook, like all of the ones you mentioned right now that were true for so many of us. But if purely just looking at some of the things that maybe work or didn't work, if we can put the stress aside a little bit. What do you think would be possible and important to bring into the new normal of teaching some of the engineering disciplines? And what are the things you think, you know, are really big challenges that we need still need to consider? Yeah, great, great question. I'm going to have to think a little bit on that. Well, I mentioned, you know, on the assessment side, I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's certainly an area where, you know, there's there's ongoing challenges, right? And and a lot of it has to do with when we move to more online assessments, um, you know, issues around academic integrity, issues around, you know, the technology that students, you know, need to, to be able to access online exams and mm-hmm. how do you how do you deal with technical difficulties and tech support for those students. You know, that's that's an ongoing area of need. And, you know, I know there was, for good reason, a lot of pushback, you know, some of the online proctoring services and that sort of thing really get into pretty uncomfortable territory, not only for students, I think, but for instructors and, and universities in terms of respecting students and their privacy, you know, as, as they take online assessments. So I think it really revealed some trust issues between students and faculty and universities mm-hmm. that again, have always been there, right, when we're talking about things like academic integrity, but um, definitely more pronounced as we move to, to, like, more online exam types of things. So I, I think that's an area that we need to keep looking at. And, and again, maybe some of that means moving away from exams and towards other kinds of competency assessments, right? Maybe that's mm-hmm. uh, more of a portfolio approach where students are documenting and reflecting on their work in other ways that demonstrate competence. You know, maybe it's bringing yet more project-based learning in and experiential learning in. I think those are all opportunity spaces or, or other kinds of innovations in, in assessment. So assessment is definitely one of the spaces. I think there's opportunities for, for a lot of innovation and, and development. You know, I have, you know, I think about the, when I think about both courses really you know, I'm, I continue to be intrigued by how do we, how do we creatively mix maybe more traditional approaches and some of these newer approaches? And actually, some of them really aren't that new. Um, I'm, I'm going to date myself, but I did, I did my first online teaching at Virginia Tech not quite 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we used a platform back then called Centra One, which was basically like Zoom, but without video. 
So mm-hmm. we were doing online audio-enabled meetings, including with breakout groups, almost mm-hmm. 20 years ago, right? So, so these are not new issues, but I, I still, I'm still intrigued by how do we, ju- just as I think companies, employees are asking now, how can we go back to work in a hybrid format mm-hmm. that sort of gives us the advantages or the benefits, gives us the best of both worlds? I think that's really one of the key questions that's that, that's facing universities now and, and across fields, right, but including in engineering. And that may very well be the reality that students are encountering when they go out into the workforce, right? It's, it's going to be maybe an increasingly hybrid environment. Arguably, it has already been for quite some time. Um, so how, how can we, you know, take advantage of these different modalities we have now, including mm-hmm. to benefit different types of learners with different types of needs, right? Mm-hmm. right? That there are some students who are probably, they're going to thrive no matter where you put them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Other students who are going to thrive with a more online environment for any number of reasons. It could be ability, disability, and accessibility concerns. Mm-hmm. It could be... It could be personality and learning style concerns uh, or, or differences, right? You're going to have other students who, uh, for a variety of reasons, are going to thrive in a face-to-face uh, environment. So that's that's what I'm talking about. You know, how can we leverage multiple mo- modalities so that we're, you know, it's the idea of the the tide, ri- you know, the tide rising uh, to to benefit all the boats, right? Um, not not yeah, just. Um, yeah. I, I think that's a key question going forward. So I want to transition um, a little bit to talking about your work in the global engineering space that I think is even more prominent now that we think about people are now on in different countries and different continents participating in class. So I'd like to think more and more because of the pandemic, the classroom situation is starting to reflect the workplace, like you talked about the students and their parents. We hear the critique that we're not actively, we're not preparing students well for the workplace. What do you think about that, given our current situation? Um, I, yeah, I tend, I tend to agree with that for a variety of reasons, and I, and I think, I think broadly, uh, we're not doing enough to prepare students for the professional skill demands, and that includes the global competency kind of demands they're, they're, they're going to they're going to encounter when they get into the workplace. Um, you know, I, and I really, I'll come back. I've, I've, I've referred to this already, but it's kind of the three C's um, of professional work, communication, collaboration, and coordination. And I think the kinds of project-based, team-based learning experiences, some of which we, we do in our, in our first-year engineering courses, are, are the kinds of learning experiences that I think can help students learn those those skills. I think the problem, in part, is because we have this. We already have a often a big list of technical learning outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of this too, right? Um, I have a certain core set of technical learning outcomes for my class, which tends to be the primary um, focus of a lot of the assessments and the homeworks. It makes it very difficult to bring in the professional skill development and professional competency development in a way that's sort of meaningful and, you know, its, its importance is perceived by students as, as equal to or greater than the technical outcomes. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's not because the technical outcomes tend to loom so large and, and they're also easier to assess, right? Like, um, it's easier for me often to assess whether a student has developed a particular kind of understanding of, say, let's say, um, selection structures in MATLAB programming, as opposed to the ability to informally informally communicate with peers in a team setting, right? That's mm-hmm. very hard to assess. So I think that's a continuing challenge. I don't know if I have an answer to it. I mean, I do think things like experiential learning and PBL are, are maybe part of the answer. Um, and particularly, I... I through a lot of our research, you know, we've been able to point to a tremendous amount of learning that happens in in the workplace for students in internships and co-ops. And I think that's a, a place where we really miss a lot of opportunities to connect 
school learning and workplace learning and really underscore the development of professional skills through through the workplace environment. So I, I think that's one place in particular where so many of our students are already doing that, but it's sort of set off over here as a separate space of learning, and we miss a lot of opportunities to underscore you know, the professional skills development that's happening there, but also link it back to the classroom learning that's happening on campus and, and show how those things are, in some cases, not related, but in a lot of cases, related. So that's a very broad answer. <laughs> Thank you. Complex question. Maybe a little bit of a historical look at the situation. I don't know if you look over the last hundred years or so, and how much of a big deal last year was for, say, engineering education. And will we be able to have the momentum to carry some of the changes that might be, like you mentioned, maybe multiple modalities of learning and other things kind of will be able to move them forward or historically, because I think education changes do not happen fast. So do we have an advantage now? Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question. And it's really one of the main questions, I think, going forward. And I, I can see a couple of a couple of competing forces there. One is that, you know, a lot of institutions, a lot of universities, a lot of administrators are sort of seizing on this moment to um, try to encourage maintaining some of the, the new affordances and best practices and modalities that, that have emerged during this time, right? Especially the ones that have some promise in support, better supporting student learning or supporting different kinds of learners mm-hmm. or supporting um, students from different kinds of backgrounds and demographics and ability, disability, learning styles, right? I think, I think there's some maybe institutional momentum now in trying to explore more effective online and hybrid kind of approaches to edu- education, um, including in engineering. I think a lot of the, the counter forces come back to the traditional, just the traditional university structures and reward systems, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I continue to hear a lot of stories about very inflexible engineering mm-hmm. faculty who do not see the online environment very differently from the classroom environment. So things like grade curving, uh, standard norm <laughs> grade curving types of practices continuing as they always have, even though that's been shown over and over again to not be an effective practice um, and is really problematic uh, for student success in a lot of a lot of ways. You know, standards, you know, continuing to do sort of standard lecture based presentations of material, regardless of whether it's classroom or face to face. You know, and, and a lot of it comes back to faculty time. I mean, especially at research intensive universities, you know, faculty are typically not well rewarded for instructional innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, they're rewarded for research achievements, sometimes rewarded for admi- administrative roles and achievements. So I think we still have an incentive problem um, in a lot of cases. And, you know, you can you can look at innovations that are led by perhaps non-tenured faculty as an example of this. You know, people mm-hmm. who are in professor of practice positions or lecturer positions who are doing really interesting things in part because the incentives are there for it. So I I think those are a couple of the the competing forces. I mean, engineering is also notoriously just conservative as as a field, right? So I think there's a cultural issue there as as well in terms of impeding innovation on the engineering education side in a lot of programs. Interesting. I wonder if some of the students, especially when you think about more digital natives generation, if they will push the limits a little bit and the expectation of having more maybe online types of cases or maybe blended, so it will be kind of driven by their needs too. Yeah, I I think at the institution level, maybe, right? Because parents and students have a lot of influence, but not necessarily on an individual course or program, I would say it's at a higher level, you know, it would be across Mm -hmm. a college or across a university. I I think that's where those voices tend to aggregate and have some influence is is at that higher level. I mean, when when you have particularly parents and donors speaking to university administrators, provosts and presidents, that that is actually a pretty strong lever sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm 
I'm maybe not as encouraged by like the mod- the change model of like individual students. I mean, students also vote with their feet, right? And if a, if teacher A has a reputation for unengaging classes and mm-hmm. teacher B has a better mm-hmm. reputation, you know, students will will vote with their feet, but they don't always have the luxury of picking that section versus the other section because they also want to graduate, right? And they need to get the classes and all those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. students are often very hemmed in by uh, a lot of those structural considerations. But I think in the aggregate, I think we will see more demand from students collectively and from parents and those who are actually paying for the education, um, demanding institutions provide more flexibility and do things differently um, mm-hmm. to, to accommodate some, some of the some of the different needs, but also to leverage some of the new modalities and options that are they're opening up. I mean, the other pushback, though, is that you move stuff online and people don't want to pay as much for it. There's a lot of a lot of tensions in, in that space. So I want to ask a, what I think is a radical question. We may have to cut it. So you've taught both undergrads and grad students, and the argument can be made that one set is more mentally mature than the other. Were the classes, were your experiences in the undergrad class online, the grad class online, as it relates to just students' overall mannerism, like, did you notice any difference in their shift to online for a class that otherwise would have been face-to-face? Yeah, that's a great question. I think maybe in the undergraduate classes, it's a little bit more pronounced. Part of that's just the number of students. Yeah. But it's also has to do with the number of classes they're enrolled in and who's paying for the tuition and in those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I think in the undergrad classes, you see a little bit more of the extremes, especially students who are struggling. You, you see more extremes. I think with the graduate students, you do tend to find it's a more professional group. It's a, it's a more mature group of students. So the, the range tends to be a little narrower. You don't have the, you know, as many extreme events. And when students do have extreme issues that they're dealing with, they tend to be a little bit more professional and um, proactive in communicating uh, those types of issues. But that said, you know, I, I mean, even among my, my smaller grad class, I had 18 students this spring. You know, I had a group that wasn't as engaged. They weren't as active on the Zoom calls. I have them do discussion board posts, and um, they tended to have shorter discussion board posts, and they weren't as engaged there. I presume it's some of the same students who had feedback at the end of class that was not as favorable. <laughs> uh, you know, they felt the format was maybe a little repetitive. Um, you know, they didn't they didn't particularly appreciate you know some of the readings, and you know, so I saw some of that range even with the graduate students. I just think it's their, their baseline is just typically a little bit a little bit higher, uh, and for some of them too, they're paying tuition or their employers are, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it hits their pocketbook a little bit closer. I think that makes a difference as well. Mm-hmm. I will say though that you know anybody's listening and wants to do research on graduate level engineering education, it's a it's a wide open space. I mean, there's very <laughs> little work there, so I would strongly encourage you know anybody in the engineering education field that wants to study and write about graduate level teaching and learning and engineering, um, I, I would love to see more work in that area. And a little bit of a logistical question. Was there any piece of software technology that you found or you discovered for yourself um, you found really useful in teaching? Um, in my grad course, towards the end of the semester, I started using Jamboards. It's one of the Google tools. Um, there are other options av- available. There's other other software uh, that you can use to do it, but it's basically an online whiteboard post-it note tool, and that worked re- really nice. It's super easy to use. Um, you can structure it. You can set up multiple frames or slides. Um, you can add annotations, but if you give folks the link to a Jamboard, they can they can jump on. They can put. Uh, their own post-it notes up. They can edit and move things around, add annotations, add frames. And I've, I've used that for a workshop earlier this mm-hmm. semester or in the spring, and I used it in my grad class and really enjoyed it. I thought it worked really well. Um, it provides a really nice sort of side channel in a way and sort of synthesis mechanism um, in, in, the, in the course um, and also a feedback mechanism for students, you know, if they don't feel comfortable raising their hand. It's very easy to put a post-it note in 
even semi-anonymously. Um, so there's a little bit of trust involved as well. But it provides a really nice mechanism. Now, as, a, as an instructor, it's a little challenging because you've got to manage two modalities, right? So there's a little bit of back and forth there. So that that is cognitively, it's a little bit challenging. But that is that is a tool that I, I really I've really come to appreciate and, and use quite a bit at the end of the semester. Beyond that, let me think if there were any others. Yeah, I, I was I was not. We use the discussion boards in Brightspace for the graduate course, and I'd actually like to find a different solution for that because I didn't find that to be so effective. Uh, in the undergraduate course, we used a tool called Piazza, kind of like an online you know online question and answer tool. And that worked especially well for the project. So we had a Piazza set up with like folders for each of the project milestones. And um, I would say it was, uh, you know, maybe 10 to 20 percent of students used it pretty actively, at least were posting and commenting pretty often. Um, I think there were a lot of other lurkers who just, you know, were sort of keeping mm-hmm. an eye on it and looking for insights and guidance. But um I thought that tool worked pretty well. And, yeah, we used that. I used that both semesters and, mm-hmm. and well. And Zoom is by far my favorite uh, platform <laughs> for, for doing the classes uh, just because of the range of tools that they have between the breakouts and the um, polling tool is mm-hmm. nice. Uh, I think they could do better with some of the interactive pieces, you know, like how people can participate with yes, no emoticons. I think that could be a little better, but just in terms of base functionality. Yeah, I'm, I'm a convert to, <laughs> to Zoom mm-hmm. for sure. I particularly like the live transcription, and students did talk about, especially for my grad class that was yeah. so discussion heavy, being able to get the transcript of the class to review. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, and I think maybe also to again come back to this new normal moving forward, what advice would you give to engineering or STEM instructors when they have to go back into the classroom and perhaps rethink? or find time to rethink their courses. Uh, do you have any practical advice for them or things they should pay attention to? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. And I'm I'm actually teaching yet a different class in the fall. So I need to start thinking about that as well. So <laughs> actually I'm teaching an undergraduate global engineering course. So you're kind of giving good advice to yourself. <laughs> um, a little bit. Yeah, I, my uh, my wife and I were actually talking about this, and I think one of the challenges is going to be managing student expectations around providing um, material that can be viewed outside of class, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's going to be, regardless of whether instructors want to do it, I think there's going to be increased student expectations around having um, either the ability to participate synchronously in class meetings from a distance and or have available recordings to um, to access after class if for whatever reason they're not able to attend. And again, it, you know, we may be dealing with continued quarantine and uh, other sorts of disruptions and illness. Um, we just don't know. Right. So I think there there is a new expectation or there'll be a, a, an increased expectation that students have access to participate both synchronously and and or asynchronously and in different modalities and formats. And I think the expectations for the quality of those is going to go up as well. Um, so that's one thing that I'm trying to figure out what to do, right, in terms of recording my, you know, do I record my class sessions um, or do I do pre-recorded content and voiceovers? Do I do more of a flipped classroom model? I mean, that's um, that's something that I'm thinking about. You know, I think student mental health issues, mm-hmm. um They've been on the rise anyway, and the pandemic has only, I think, amplified and made more visible those kind of issues. So I think I think everyone needs to be more tuned into student mental health and be proactive and sort of reaching out to students, monitoring for issues, supporting students, um, keeping those doors open. I mean, there's always a you know there's a limit, but um, you know I I think that's an that's an ongoing need that is is very visible now. Um, so, sorry, just to pause on that quickly, how would yeah. you do it as an instructor? Do you just say that if you have problems, you can come back and talk to me without, you know, making it kind of a big thing? I think for instructors, I mean, I think you get to my stage in life. I mean, most of us at some point have been in therapy or, you know, have gone through some sort of period of depression or, I mean, 
it's just inevitable, right? It happens in life. I think acknowledging that we all mm-hmm. that we all experience those things and being a little vulnerable is mm-hmm. is really critical to to having students feel like they're not the only one and they're they're comfortable. I think yes, encouraging them to to talk to talk to you and and to I mean, I always tell students if you tell me in advance something's going on, I'm going to bend bend over backwards to mm-hmm. to help you out and, and try to support your success. Um, but getting them to the point where they feel comfortable doing that is, I think, really the, a, a critical step mm-hmm. and also really challenging. Making them aware of other resources. They've probably heard it elsewhere, but it doesn't hurt to remind them of other places where they can go for support, whether that's mm-hmm. their academic advisor, counseling services on campus, counseling services in the community, peer networks. Um, you know, there's a lot of student groups and meetups that happen around various kinds of support and mental mm-hmm. health issues and other, you know, issues, making them available, uh, again, aware of disability resources and making sure that they're proactive in documenting any any issues in, in that space, get diagnosed mm-hmm. if, if, mm-hmm. You know, if in doubt, um, mm-hmm. go talk to the folks in the Disability Resource Center. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are all, all things. Um, I think, you know, online office hours, probably increasingly the norm. And uh, maybe that means just having both face-to-face and online office hours open um, during the week. And, yeah, really building rapport with students, you know, is, is just it's so critical, right? Um, mm-hmm. and I'll admit, I'm not always the best at it, right? Um, you know, I think I, that's a place for me to grow. Um, but finding ways to build rapport and trust with students, I think, is really is more critical than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is going to have to be a whole separate conversation some other time, just this idea. Natasha and I have been rolling over this idea of how do you build trust in an online environment when it's easier for them to see you as a person and be more relatable. You know, we talk about these informal conversations that happens with students as you're waiting on class to start, where you can demonstrate that you care about their well-being, that really a Zoom or an online environment does not create that space for these informal, mm-hmm. academic type conversations. Yeah, and and the, you know, in that there are scale challenges with that as well, right? So it's one thing to do that in a class with twenty five or thirty students. Mm-hmm. Uh, now mm-hmm. you scale to a hundred or one hundred and fifty students. Right. Um, yes, you may have more instructional resources, but I think it makes it more likely that students are going to feel you know, in, invisible or prefer to stay invisible sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how do you, how do you scale that? I mean, you know, one, one of the things we tried, I like some aspects of it. I mean, for, for one, one of the, one of the semesters with the projects, what we did was, you know, we had three different ways to participate every week for the students. They could, um, I'm trying to think what they were. They could meet one-on-one with a member of the teaching team. So, we had six of us and we each had time blocks scheduled. So we had like a half hour block with every team and at least one member of the team had to come and talk to us mm-hmm. every week once. Right. So mm-hmm. we're seeing that instructor to team interaction. And then that lets us also check in on the other team members. Cause we'd say, well, Hey, have you heard from John this week? He hasn't been very visible in our records. You know, we can use the team as a mechanism to do that. The students could also come to, um, I think we had like online help sessions they could show up to. That's another way they could participate. And then we had a, we just had a survey where we um, basically had a very simple participation survey that was basically, what have you been working on? What are you planning to work on? How can we help you? Right. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they're not able to participate in these other synchronous activities. They can submit a, a reflection survey and sort of report out on what they're up to and, and what needs they might have. And, and I also like that, too, because sometimes students feel safer with the survey response are more comfortable sharing things that they wouldn't be as comfortable with in a group setting or even in a one-on-one uh, Zoom call with an instructor. So that provides another, another modality to get you know, information back to us and for us to act on. Now, of course... It introduces a new problem because now we have to we have to monitor that, right? We have to take action, right? So again, there are scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Now, what's amazing always to me to see is that obviously there are positives and negatives with online teaching and use of various technologies and education. But it just was amazing to see and something you reiterated multiple times is that a lot of the problems came up on surface. Mm -hmm. And I think they became very visible. And it just feels that I know Nicole likes to talk a lot about intentionality um, in teaching because, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but it seems like it made a lot of instructors really aware and intentional about, well, how do they integrate social aspects? How do they build trust with their students? Mm-hmm. How do they connect better? How do they present a content in a different way and maybe, you know, make it also resources available outside of the class time? So kind of, I guess, reflective <laughs> teaching, <laughs> what we call our podcast, <laughs> um, is, is really came forward. For many and just being aware that we need to consider those things because otherwise when you in your regular routine it's hard to stop and think yeah. and it, it is and it's and it's it's a larger challenge too because in these larger engineering classes that i'm teaching it's not just about me doing that work and projecting mm-hmm. that it's all the members of our teaching team so mm-hmm. for example i'm typically working with a graduate teaching assistant and at least four undergraduate teaching assistants and if they're not also projecting, you know, that kind of openness and trust and building that rapport, they're also on the front lines of this, right? So mm-hmm. I think we often struggle with doing that professional development with our teaching assistants and both graduate and undergraduate. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a critical need, especially in a lot of engineering classes that have these larger enrollments, engineering science and other electives, right, where your teaching assistants are part of your eyes and ears on the ground. And if, if they're not open and attentive to some of these concerns, that's a huge issue. And I mean, but it's tough, right? I mean, there's a lot of professional development we need to do with our teaching assistants just to get them using mm-hmm. the technology and understanding the course content and understanding all the management systems. I mean, that's a big part to begin with. And then you add on top of it, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion training and, um, some years ago, we tried to do some intercultural development training, and it just became too much. We couldn't get it scheduled. Mm-hmm. There, there weren't enough hours. I, I think that's an ongoing, an ongoing challenge. And these people rotate through, right? So I changed exactly. the Phoenix group this <laughs> year, and, and, and half of them are gone next year. Right? <laughs> right. So. All the many challenges. Brent, thank you. Thank you for being a part of our conversation today. Thank you for such wonderful conversation. Yes, it is very good uh, seeing you both both again. And um, yeah, good good luck with the podcast. It's been fun chatting. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you.